something like getting married is just as destabilizing to your system as like losing a partner. Interesting. Starting a new job, moving to a new city is just as destabilizing as getting fired. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today I talk with Hala Alian, who is probably best known as a poet, but also works as a clinical psychologist specializing in trauma. Hala taught poetry for me at the writing workshop I run in Paris each summer, but what really enraptured students this year was her lecture on the uses of narrative as therapy. Now, if like me, you were raised in the understated American Midwest, therapy is a somewhat suspicious sounding word. But as you'll find out in this interview, Hella has an uncommonly accessible way of speaking about how therapy actually serves people and improves their lives. Narrative therapy involves making sense of and gaining mastery over the difficult parts of your life by refining the story you tell about it. We talk about how this sense for taking control of your life story can make your life happier and more stable amid trauma and loss and change and transition. We talk about the common causes of stress in life and how the transition into marriage and parenthood can be as legitimately stressful as breakup and loss. We talk about how trauma isn't a contest and how just because other people have it worse than you doesn't mean you should fail to acknowledge and deal with the stresses in your own life. As I said, this conversation took place in Paris over the summer, so in a sense, this episode is sponsored by the Paris Writing Workshop. To check out the writing classes we offer on topics like poetry and travel writing and big idea books, just go to pariswritingworkshops.com. And if you end up coming to Paris for one of our classes, you might consider making it your first stop on a vagabonding journey around the world. More on how you can do just that by checking out my sponsor, Airtrex, which creates affordable round-the-world tickets for vagabonding travelers. Check out their flight planning tools at airtrex.com. For now, please listen in as we talk in Halla's Paris classroom just before her writing class begins. We start by talking about the faintly medieval weirdness of the Paris classroom itself. Let's listen in. The great thing about Paris, and this is for my listeners, is that you can be in this room that looks sort of modern, and then you realize that there's this box that covers a staircase that goes into a super creasy yeah, basement. Yeah, there's a graveyard. Yeah, that's connected to <laughs> the catacombs, which is where six million dead French people are. Anyway, speaking of transitions. <laughs> speaking of smooth, <laughs> seamless transitions. Yeah, you, you teach poetry here, but one of your more intriguing classes this summer, which got a big rave from the students, was a class which, for lack of a better term I'll call, was about narrative therapy. Mm-hmm. Uh, narrative is something that's commonly spoken about here, therapy less so. Right. So. Why don't you give me a definition of narrative therapy and then I'll ask okay. a little about you and then we'll talk about what therapy, therapy is exactly. So narrative therapy is a form of treatment that goes about helping clients reauthor events in their lives. So the, the main tenets of narrative therapy are that there's no such thing as one reality. We construct our realities and oftentimes our realities are constructed for us through what we're told through society, what we're told through our parents, etc. Um, and so what happens often is a number, a jumble of things happen to a person in, in, in their life. And the way that the body and the system takes it in is that we develop these dominant stories about ourselves, right? So I can't make a relationship work. I'm stubborn. Nobody treats me well, right? So you, you sort of create these stories about yourself. And narrative therapy says, well, let's take a step back. Let's tell the story of your life through a multi-storied lens rather than a dominant story lens. Let's look at it from different angles and then in the rewriting of the story. And sometimes the rewriting and the reauthoring is something that's done verbally with the therapist. Sometimes it's literally you sit down and you're kind of telling the story of your life. Um, What happens a lot of the time, and I think as a writer, you're probably familiar with this, is like the more you tell a story, the more you pick up on different things, right? The more the perspective sort of shifts and you're like, oh, I didn't think of it this way. Hmm. Um, And so usually different perspectives emerge. There's also techniques like um, deconstructing, so taking what seems like one overarching character flaw or thing that always happens to you and look and kind of really breaking it down into bite-sized pieces. Um, there's the unique outcomes model. So if, if you're, you'll hear, hear people be like, I can't keep like all my, my entire social life is a mess, right? Like I can't make any relationship work to save my life. 
And then the more you do this kind of technique, you're like, well, what about your roommate? You've, you've lived with that roommate for five years. You seem to have a great relationship with that person. You vacation with that person. So looking for outcomes that are different than the ones that you generally think of when you look at your dominant story. And the, the general aim here is that we feel more, we feel more in control of our stories and also they end up having different endings because we're telling them differently. And I think what ends up happening, like the merit of that a lot of the time is that you gain a sense of mastery and agency in the world. Um, one of the things I really like about narrative therapy in general is there's this undercurrent of existentialism, not in like a bleak way, but in just a very straightforward, like there isn't really any inherent meaning in anything. And so it's our job to find that meaning. And then that's like a really incredible, freeing, liberating, creative task if you, you know, if you're open to it. It feels like this applies to so much because even yes. a big part of my brand in vagabonding, it's it's a narrative task. I never really thought about it this way, but basically I say in my book, society tells you to get married and have a job and work your ass off right. until you're 65 and then travel right? Uh, because that that's when you have permission and, and sort of my without literally thinking about it this way I, i'm sort of saying well actually you can tell a story that says i can travel now i can exactly rethink this exactly exactly yeah you're re i mean i think we are retelling stories sometimes without realizing it we're retelling them through our action we're retelling them through the relationships we have we're re retelling them through the cities we live in the places we leave the places we visit um, so yeah, totally. I mean, your example is very much one where you just kind of reauthored that, that narrative that you've been given. I think even if we pretend not to be narrative, mm -hmm. we are, we invariably are. Totally. When we introduce somebody to someone else, it's like, this is my friend who blah, 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 blah. This is a friend I met in Prague. This That's is the story. friend who played minor league baseball for five years. And suddenly it's the narrative. You're literally narrativizing your relationship exactly. with this person. By the way, this is just an aside because we're in Please. France, but you're talking about existentialism. Oh, dear. <laughs> it's, it's a meme I found. It says, actually, it's not existentialism. It's from the existential, if it's not from the existentialism region of France, otherwise it's just That's sparkling hilarious. anxiety. <laughs> I might edit that it out. It is sparkling anxiety. I know, no, you should keep it. This <laughs> right. is part of our story now. <laughs> well, that, that's narrative too, because sometimes uh, maybe existentialism seems super bleak and actually anxiety might not be a synonym for, for existentialism. Right, 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 right. But um, it's just a funny way of dealing with these these lofty concepts and that's giving totally. you permission to, to take existentialism less seriously. Totally, totally, totally. But I want to dig into all of you know, the nitty gritty of how this works, because I think like a lot of people, and this includes me, were raised thinking the therapy is for people who have problems uh -huh. and you sort of want to project yourself as a person who doesn't right. really have problems. Right. Or if you do have problems, other people have problems worse. So just mm -hmm. shut up and, and deal mm -hmm. with it. When in fact, we all have permission to yes. deal with our own problems on our own terms, you know, despite the degree that somebody on the other side of the world or the other side of town might have it worse. So right. that's where I'm going. But first, I want to know how you ended up doing this. Because, right. you know, I, I see you as a poet because that's what you teach here in Paris. But uh, obviously, this is a topic that you're very vested in and you know a lot about. So how did you wind up Enter becoming... Enter into therapy. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so I was born to Palestinian, Syrian, Lebanese immigrants who met and married in Kuwait, um, which is where I spent the first few years of my life. And then when Saddam invaded we moved to the Midwest. My parents sought asylum in Oklahoma and Texas. We were there until I was about, we moved like throughout the States, but we were in the States until I was about 13, moved back to the Middle East. I was there until I did my undergrad in Beirut and then moved back to the States. So I think one of the things that happened, would talk, I mean, talk about sort of these disjointed narratives, right? So to live in Norman, Oklahoma when you're 11, Hamden, Maine when you're 12, Alain United Arab Emirates when you're 13, and then Tripoli, Lebanon when you're 14, will create a pretty intense sense of fragmentation and like, I don't, I don't know what my story is, I don't know. And so I, I was just reinventing it as I went along. And so I, I think I was well equipped to do that because I'd been writing since I was six. Okay. So I was pretty good at like reinventing things, being imaginative. Like, I think that's one of the beautiful things about when you're when you encourage children to read and write a lot is you're just encouraging them to practice acceptance of different realities. Hmm. So in a lot of ways, it's just like a really good life trait to have. 
So was your task in a way connecting Norman, Oklahoma to Maine? I think to, so. To yeah, I think it was to, it was to make a coherent narrative out of mm. all of these disparate experiences. Oftentimes that coherency came in family. It was very much like my family versus the world, right? We were very small. Um, it was like a little small tr Arab tribe in the middle of all these random places. And maybe even you were sort of an outsider in Kuwait because Palestinian. um, as Palestinians, totally, you know, totally. that you... I think Palestinianism in itself, I mean, we could talk about this for an hour, is like, is an identity that is very, like, it's, there's a lot of exile built into it and a lot totally of outsiderness. Yes, right? totally, totally. Yeah. Unless you are in Palestine and right. even in Palestine, there is that experience, I think, as well right now um, with the occupation and everything. But I think for the most part, anywhere else in the world that you are, inherently you, you are somewhere that you are not of. Right. Um, and so that is that was part of the fragmentation too, along with what is it to be American and then also Arab? What is it to be this like six year old kid that pledges allegiance every day and then also goes home and like like eats food that's very different than the classmates are eating and is you know talking in a language that's different and is following these customs that are different. So finding a way to stitch some coherency throughout it, I think, was a big part of like practicing narrative. I think also finding a coherent self that was able to continue from place to place became the challenge, especially as I entered my teens, which is, nor I mean, that's identity formation for everybody to begin with, but there, the stakes were a little bit higher because I literally was a different person, meaning I was Holly. I went by the name H-O-L-L-Y in okay. the States. And then when we moved back to uh, the Middle East, I became Hala again. Okay. And so literally I was trying to be like, who is the core person here who can like, allow for both Holly and Hala to live simultaneously and how can I seamlessly transition into this other identity and um, so I think in a lot of ways I became interested in it because I lived it um, and then when I was doing my undergrad in Beirut I was there I like to say it's like four years that were very formative to the country but honestly any four years randomly in Lebanon are probably formative to the country so the first year I was there the prime minister was assassinated and then in 2006 between my uh, sophomore and junior years was the war um, Which, weirdly enough, is probably most famous in the American consciousness because of Anthony Bourdain. I know. You know? Because had to be evacuated. Yeah. 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 Totally. Totally. So that so that, that was what happened. And then there was like the, the Hezbollah taking over of the Martyr Square a couple of years later. So it was just my, co my college years were, this was really the backdrop of it. And it became super normalized. Um, but it did shift my interest from macro to micro. So I, wa I wanted to do law school. I was studying political science. I was really inter interested in international law. And then by the time I graduated undergrad, I was like, I kind of want to just deal with people like one-on-one. -on -one. And so psych made like, you know, psychology made natural, a lot of natural sense for me. Um, and then the more I started studying it, I was simultaneously living this life that was, you know, continued to have a lot of chaos, continued to have a lot of upheaval. Um, and I was realizing that the more that I wrote, the more I felt like I was making sense of the world, the more I felt like I was kind of ordering this chaos. And then it was like, well, this seems like a really natural place for the two things to meet because both therapy and writing, you know, I've said this before, it's like they both deal with the same currency, which is stories, right? Which is like you, you come into, a, you come in to see a therapist and you're coming in with all this random, not connected things. Right. Even if it same isn't narrative therapy, you're using doesn't stories matter. to communicate. It doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah. You're still coming in with these random events that have happened. I mean, life doesn't happen to us in this like appealing, here's the climax, here's the protagonist, here's the good guy, right? Yeah. Nor do stories. Yeah. You know, nor does a memoir, nor does a poem. We just have these images or thoughts or conversations, and then you have to come and make like a coherent story out of it. And so I think in a lot, of, they've always felt like people are like, "What is it like to have two separate careers?" And I'm like, they're really the same. They're they're like branches from the same tree, in my opinion. Yeah, and just as an aside, you went to the American University in, of Beirut. In yeah. Beirut. Yeah. 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 And so listen, you visited probably, that campus, right? I did. I totally I love visited that, that place. Camp, campus. Oh. Yeah. And then I had a friend, like a friend of a friend hung out with me there and, and she was great. And, and I, I like that city. We've, we've already talked I about it. I know. It's such a beautiful place. Yeah. I really recommend. It, it gets a bad rap. The Middle East gets a bad rap in terms of like safety, quote unquote safety, yeah. um, particularly with Western tourists. But it's like Beirut is stunning. Well, it's funny too. Like if you, if you said Beirut or Lebanon, 
people in my hometown, not far from Oklahoma, mm -hmm. would say, oh, yeah, there's tons of Lebanese Americans in Wichita. But if you said Palestinian American, they'd go, oh, hmm. it's oh, a little that, different. That's that violent place, right? Right, right, right. So there's this great, I think there's more of, a, at least in, in the middle of the US, more of a, a Lebanese American presence than. It's all, it's, all, it's all proximity. Yeah. Right? It's all proximity. And it's all how many degrees of difference is there. So I've, I've noticed, particularly in the Midwest, there's more comfort with Arab communities that are Christian, yeah. right? Yeah. Because that's one less thing that's different about yeah. you, you know? Um, so I think that's a big part of it. It is like if you know people, if you live in a town where there's a lot of Palestinians, then it's less frightening. Right. Yeah. If you played soccer with a Palestinian exactly. and one was in band with you, right? <laughs> yeah. but, but this is all narrative, right? It, once you start thinking the story of things, changes. The yeah. story changes. Exactly. Your once story you about it changes. Thinking of things in terms of narrative is like, what does it not touch? It's everything. Because we remember in narrative, we communicate in narrative, we lie totally. in narrative, we tell the truth in narrative. Totally. Um, and so, and you know, some listeners might be thinking, oh, well, gosh, I only lived in one place. I, I didn't live in, you know, three different countries in four different places, but... You probably in, lived five different lives, though. Well, I grew up in an era when it was like, well, it's not like it was in the 50s when you grew sure. up in one house and one town and sure, mom sure, always sure, had sure. food on your table. Now, that probably wasn't true in the 50s. Right. But there's this disjointed sense that I've grown up with, even though, by comparison, the 1980s was much more stable than it is now, where if you're a kid, for example... You might live your whole life in Saline County, Kansas, but on your Instagram, right. you're seeing what seems like a much better life and people who are right. sort of like right, right, right. even being honest, but seem like they're living right. a much happier life that is even possible. So in a sense, it feels like narrative therapy or even just the importance of narrative is going to become ever more important because yes. we're disjointed even if we aren't moving around all the time. Totally. Totally, totally. And I think even if you stayed in the same place and never had access to internet, we live different lives, right? We have the, all these different transitions and metamorphoses in our lives. And, and I think that's how to connect the seven-year-old you with the 15-year-old you, with the 27-year-old you, with the 38-year-old you. I mean, that, that's, that is part of the task of coming up with these stories about ourselves that are also flexible, that allow for change and allow for things to happen to you and for you to do things. And, um, I think that's a big part when you talk about trauma. Trauma is like it really fragments people's identity and sense of self. And a lot of the times it really shakes any trust or faith in the world or in a system, quote unquote, that works or that, you know, is, is good, right? And I think that's where the, the, the idea of narrative comes in because it, you make the meaning, right? So rather than I am this terrible thing that happened to me, you integrate it into your sense of identity ideally. So it becomes a thing that happened to you yeah. at some point, not that you are all of this. Right. And that's it. I want to dig into that more. Like this is something among many things that happened versus this is the defining moment of my right. life, which versus can... I am this. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. As an aside, I want to point out that I recently finished season three of Stranger Things. I haven't and, seen any of it. Well, it reminded you me were the, of, You were all talking about it the other true. day. And I was just like, silence, yeah. Well, then, then we even watch television in narrative terms because I see these boys who were 15 in 1986 and I was 15 in 1986. Mm. And the funny thing is, is that in 1985, I was five foot two. And in 1989, I was six foot two. Oh my God. And just the different people you are in one youth totally. period. Totally. Um, and I just think of the ways, the narrative ways I made sense with that. You know, when yeah. if you look at my journal from, or it was actually, is technically a memoir, it's not a day by day journal, but it's me making sense of my ninth grade year. It's me sort of becoming more popular and self-confident. But in retrospect, it's also me, if not being a bully, I'm sort of being bully adjacent, yes. right? Yep. Yeah, I'm sort of being yeah. this meaner person. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think even my 1988-89 person would recognize that the triumphant 1986 Rolf was sort of a mean guy who yeah. didn't really make a breakthrough, but became a person who was more petty but more popular at the same time. And so I think youth itself is can be a disjointed completely, experience completely completely and i'm curious to know how often that comes up in actual therapy but i'm curious to know how this works how and why narrative therapy works what kind of problems you often come up against what kind of solutions you try and present 
I mean, I think it depends on what you do, right? So I'm not somebody that went and did a four. I've, I love the techniques of narrative therapy and I've like, I'm just a big fan of, it makes natural sense for me because I'm a writer, right? So yeah. the idea of working with narrative, the idea of working with stories in that way, um, I think it really depends on the population that you work with, right? So I, I see a fair amount of trauma. I work with a, with a, a number of people that are often bicultural, people that are trying to integrate different identities, um, immigrants. I've done work with survivors of torture. I've done work in prison settings. Like, so the, I, a lot of the times it's these pretty intense fragmentation of identity and self and then having to work within that framework. So I see a fair amount of trauma, I see a fair amount of substance abuse. Um, and so a lot of the times the, the task is, let's start to tell your story from the beginning. And then let's point out what are the recurring, what are the recurring dominant themes, right? So what's the dominant story? What is the story you tell yourself about yourself all the time, right? Or what's the story you tell yourself about the world a lot of the time? So a lot of the time with, with trauma, I mean, trauma literally just, it changes the brain. It changes the way that we take in things, right? So there's the metaphor of like the smoke detector that goes off, like that's a little bit too sensitive. So you might be cooking pasta, there's a little mm. bit of regular smoke and the smoke detector goes off. People that are really traumatized, their systems are very similar, right? Like a car can backfire or someone can speak in a loud voice and you're completely triggered and taken back. It's to like PTSD state. for war veterans. It's very, very similar. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, so I think in that case, like you're, you're trying to look at this idea of the world as now being a fundamentally unsafe and untrustworthy place. That's a story. That's a narrative. That's a meaning that has been made, not out of nowhere because of events that have happened. And so I think it's about striking a balance between respecting the things that have happened, not pretending they didn't and definitely validating it, um, and validating the difficulty that went along with it while also, from my perspective, making sure to be like, can we can we also keep telling the story from as, as many different perspectives as possible? Let's see what emerges. Rather than having one dominant thing about the world, the world is a bad place. The world can be a bad place, right? The world is a scary, people are scary. People can be scary. People can also be generous and they can be wonderful and they can be helpers and they can be caretakers, right? So it's like, how can we find a lot of the times, the word, it's, it's, it's interesting because a lot of the times you don't even have to do that much, do that many mental leaps, a lot of the time the evidence for the quote unquote exceptions of the dominant narrative are already in the person's life. They're just not the things we're looking at. Because our minds, we, our brains like to categorize things. It's simpler. It's easier to, I mean, it comes from way back when, right? Evolution speaking, it's like, this plant will kill you, this plant will not kill you. And so plants fall into, will kill you, will not kill you, right? It's easier to go through the world in that way. And so when something happens, hmm. particularly trauma, it's like, this is bad, this is good. And that black and white thinking, evolutionary speaking, is important, but now we don't, it's not helping us anymore, right? It's how our brains were developed. Exactly. It's probably the same reason why we get depressed when we watch too much social media, because it used to be sure. indicators in a more tribal or extended community setting where now it's completely right. disjointed. And well, you nobody has any idea how, I mean, it's 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 really, I think, uh, what's it called, Dis distru disturbed and destroyed maybe, our sense of where we stand within a community, mm -hmm. you know, because you don't, you don't know. If, you're, if you follow an influencer and then also a supermodel and then also your fourth grade teacher and then also the kid that you used to bully in third grade, you know what I mean? Like yeah. that is such an array of people. Like how do you know where you are in a hierarchical sense in that? Yeah, well, I, I recently read that it sort of returns thing to high school, you know, like the loudest person totally. is the person who sort of gets their way, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. One thing that I was thinking of as you were talking about the importance of narrative in narrative therapy, of, of realizing that you have multiple strains going through your life. One difficulty, especially for podcast listeners, people often listen to podcast listeners for sort of self-help or sort of leadership sure. type things. There's this string, probably encouraged, not without reason, within podcasts is project your best self, you know, show your strong right. side. Right. So it could be, for a lot of people, including people who are listening to this right now, the first step isn't dealing with trauma, but identifying things like, right. if not trauma, then loss or change or- Challenge, or, difficult. Or, or challenge yeah. in life. Yeah. And so yeah. I think that's important just because you know, some listeners might be saying, well, I don't have a, I wasn't, I was never tortured. So how does this apply to me? Right. So, so I think maybe for some people it's identifying, Hey, sure. It's great to project your strength, but if you have loss or change or uncertainty that's bugging you, you need to look at that and figure out ways to integrate that narratively. So, and also like welcome. 
we've okay. been waiting for you. Do you know what I mean? Like if yeah. you have those experiences, welcome to the room yeah. because we've all, we're all here, right? Yeah. And I think that a hundred percent, I've never found suffering like suffering Olympics helpful. The idea that, well, but there's, you know, there are people on boats right now on their way to the country and I'm going through, you know, a breakup or something like that. So I have nothing to complain about because I'm not in that situation. I don't, I don't think that's useful because I think all that happens a lot in my experience is people end up beating themselves up over feeling bad because they feel like they're in places of privilege. And then it also doesn't help the person that's on the boat coming into the, you know what I mean? Like it's not, it doesn't really do anything for anybody. So I think there are definitely proactive ways, this is a little side note, like there are proactive ways of supporting communities that are more marginalized than you and that have fewer opportunities than you, 100%. But that doesn't negate your suffering. And I think that there is, you know, it was one of the things we were talking about the other day is like the idea of like, you know, just because you're wealthy doesn't mean you don't suffer. Just because you're white doesn't mean you don't suffer. Just because you're a, a cis man doesn't mean you don't suffer. It, it just, all it means is that your race, your gender, your sexual orientation aren't one of the things that are making it difficult for you in the right. world. That's all it means. Yeah. And I think a lot of the times that, like there, that part is maybe missing when we have these conversations because I think it's to be able to tell people like, it's okay for you to have a bad year or it's okay for you to not be doing well. And it's okay for you to take that seriously and get yourself help because at the end of the day, even from this perspective of being a good citizen of the world and being able to support people and use privilege and voice to amplify those that don't have it, you got to, I mean, you can't pour from an empty cup. You want to be doing well enough to be able to do that to begin with, right? So the most, the most utility you can have in the world is to start internally, work on your, like, work on your shit. Sorry, I don't know if you can curse you, like, work on your stuff, um, and then go outwards, right? And so there's no, I don't think there is a, I guess what I'm trying to say is having privilege and going through difficult experiences in life are not mutually exclusive things. Right. And th- this is good to acknowledge because I think, and I've said this in this podcast before, that sometimes privilege is used as a cudgel. You know, it's made mm-hmm. to feel, make people feel bad. When in fact, I, I think it's vital that someone who may, like be from my demographic, cis, straight, white guy, mm-hmm. w- actually well-adjusted people of privilege um, are important for the for everybody, you know. That 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 if we have if if every privileged person, be they privileged because they have a stable family, or because mm-hmm. they're from the United States, or because they're a white male, if every stable person is suddenly afraid to acknowledge their own darkness or their own weakness or their own trauma, then they're not going to be attending to it, and they're going to be a less useful part of the greater conversation. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. You're not going to be able to help other people. Right. That's the thing, and I think and I think if they're and even if there is this sort of attitude of like, well, I'm, I mean, what happens, I think a lot of times is there's this like boomerang thing where it's like, oh, you're telling me I can't suffer. Well, then screw you. I can suffer. I'm suffering more than like, there's this sort of response. And then I think that it's easier to just like head all of that off by being like, no, you can suffer. Yeah. All, all that's being said is that these identity markers are not things that are making you suffer. They're not things that are making, like you can have a terrible day. Yeah. Being white is probably not one of the things that's making you have a terrible day, right? right? Like that's, I mean, and and I think that for whatever reason is probably easier to digest for people and like easier to take in a lot of the time. Yeah, I think this conversation to bang to to pick on social media a bit yeah. is that this conversation doesn't happen between loving friends. It's, it's people screaming at each other on social sure. media, and there's no nuance, right? Yeah. yeah, right. So there's this sense that everybody's angry about it when in fact it's right. just. I don't know if thought experiment is the right word, but it's like, consider this. Mm-hmm. Please consider this. Mm-hmm. So just for my listeners, it doesn't matter. Maybe you have been tortured. Maybe you have been to prison, but maybe you're going through a breakup. Maybe you are maybe you're confronting depressed. the maybe loss you of your have parents. OCD. Maybe, maybe yeah. I mean, there's so many ways to, look, we're all suffering here, yeah. right? I mean, that's, that's, that's such a fundamental aspect of the human existence and condition. It's, yeah. We're all going and, through rough times. And I want people who are listening to this to give themselves permission totally. to include themselves Totally. Because we all improve by confronting and contextualizing our Absolutely. problems. Absolutely. Yeah. And I am a, I'm a firm, firm, firm believer that you can acknowledge and be aware and, and, and responsibly use privilege while also talking about the ways in which you're marginalized and not do it like, you know, struggle, struggling or suffering or going through grief. I don't think those things are mutually exclusive. And in fact, I think that's really the only way to have a nuanced conversation yeah. about this stuff. And so, so just so my listeners know, we might be talking about 
uh, immigrant populations or intergenerational trauma, but really we're talking about this applies to everything. Can we're talking about suffering. We're, we're talking, talking about, about difficulty. We're talking about challenge. We're talking, talking about, about life. We're ta- yeah, we're talking about just like the way that the ways in which it's hard to be a human on this planet yeah. and go through a number of different experiences that will break you down in different ways and will challenge your sense of self and will challenge your what you thought you knew about relationships, what you thought mm-hmm. you knew about life, what you thought you knew about your career. We're all going to have that, you know? And so the idea is, okay, how can we really look analytically at what our dominant narratives are? What what are the stories that we've been telling ourselves? And this is where, again, the idea of like erasure and like it comes in where it's like, what are the stories we've been told about ourselves or are people like us, right? Like, what are the stories your parents have told you? What are the stories ancestrally that have existed in, in terms of your lineage? What are the stories that have been told in your small town, in your city, in your country, in your part of the like geopolitical part of the world? Like all of that, like what are the narratives that you've been told? Hmm. And I think we take that in. We 100% take that in. So a lot of the times it's not just that we've created these dominant narratives, it's that we've inherited them. Okay. Explain that a little bit. So I think like you'll see, actually family therapy is a good example of this. So a lot of the times when you work with a family in a therapeutic setting. And so sometimes you deal with multiple people in in a therapy. I I don't do a ton of, I've done a little bit in my training of family therapy. I know like the the tenants of it, right? But I've, I've. Family is too much for me to take on like 10 people. But what will happen a lot of the time when you're doing family therapy, which yes, is like sometimes it's parents, kids, sometimes it's a grandparent, one parent, one whatever, um, whatever constellation of the family there is, will come in and oftentimes there'll be an identified patient. So there'll be one person that's quote unquote the identified patient and then everybody else is coming in to kind of discuss and try to problem solve the situation. Okay. And one of the things that you see in family therapy really, really early on is that there is a family mythology in every single household in the world. Hmm. There is an Hmm. idea of this is the stubborn person. You know, this is the person who's headstrong. This is the person who's a pushover. This is the person who keeps things together. This is the caretaker. This is the whatever. I mean, just mythologically speaking, I think we, we often take certain roles, but a lot of times we're assigned those roles. Like it's amazing how young a kid, like from what, how do I phrase this? It's like, it's amazing to watch parents just ascribe personality traits and identities on kids that are like a year and a half. Huh. If you ever watch like a parent, like with a group, like, oh, she's so stubborn. Maybe this is normal. Or like, she's so whatever, or she's whatever, she's going to get her way, or she's going to, and these, I mean, these are really innocuous statements. They're adorable. They're, you know, they're fine. Yeah. They're not inherently bad or damaging. But if you really think back to, and this is probably true for most of us, like our families or the environments that we grew up in, there were stories we were being told about ourselves from a very, very, very early age, a lot of the time when you're a kid, you don't, I mean, you haven't been in the world long enough or developed enough analytical skills to challenge that or to be like, no, I don't know if I'm the troublemaker. I'm just not happy and I'm trying to get your attention, mom, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's a really nuanced sentence. And when you hear the term like, that's a problem child or that person, like that kid doesn't want to study or that kid doesn't want to whatever, I think those are things that you take in. And they become part of, again, this identity and this story that you're telling yourself about yourself. Well, it occurs to me, and this is an aside, that maybe birth order and the stereotypes ascribed to birth sure. order are, are narrative. Because totally. by the time the big sister is age three and the infant is crawling around, then he's super chill and she's super organized, totally. right? Totally. Well, in fact, actually, she used to be super chill and now she's a little bit more mature. And, and so there's sort of Or a, the parenting's changed. Well, Generally, it's, that's what happens. The parents are more experienced now. Exactly. Yeah. The parents aren't terrified they're going to kill their infant child <laughs> right, anymore right. because they've done it once before and they're like, oh, kids are hard to kill. I've, I've seen it with, you know, with my beloved sister and her family that, that just once they scratched oh. the surface with their first kid, the second kid was a same parents, slightly different style of parenting. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I have a sister that's 13 years younger than me. We have different parents in a lot huh. of ways. There's huh. completely different experiences of parenting, completely different experiences of, of being able to go out, of, of freedom, of all of that. And so that's not because inherently me and my sister are so different that we require different styles of like, like a, of different lengths of the leash, you know, it's just because our parents were different. Yeah. This ties back to what I was thinking about how we're different people when we're teenagers too. So in a sense, this narrative contextualization applies, can apply to almost everything because really <laughs> the same parents who are, who, and parents are 
invariably, in my experience, idealistic, they can really be different people and raise different people totally. at different times of their own lives. Just like when you're a five foot two ninth grader, you're a different person than a six foot two twelfth grader. Completely. Right? And that, and it were, it's also, I mean, think about like romantic relationships, right? Like, I don't know if you've read Esther Perel's Mating in Captivity. It's so good. Well, so, I mean, that there's also that idea of like the task of marriage, for example, is like how to stay married to somebody who's different than the person you married. Okay. Because things, because oh, that person evolves, they change. That's a great consideration. And so the story of the, of the romantic partner is that a lot of times that causes, that's what causes friction in relationships is that you meet somebody, you fall in love, whatever you decide, you want a, a courtship or you want to enter a relationship with them, which is essentially just a social contract, right? Whether you're married or not, you enter this relationship. And a lot of the times it's based on the story that you've told yourself about the mm. partner and about yourself. I mean, this is in like monogamous relationships obviously it's like about the partner and about yourself that story gets challenged because people change and then that's where the tension is because you're like well no but that's not the story that i thought it was you're not the person i thought you were and i think we would rather a lot of the times just discard the person than adjust the story i think this applies so much to how we live in the 21st century too because yeah. i have two sets of grandparents um, and i didn't know my paternal grandfather but my maternal grandparents are, and I'm sure I'm over idealizing them, and they're a part of my story, right? Yeah. But they were farmers, right? And so they had to work together. There, there was no, they were business partners, right. basically. Right, and right. so sort of the abstractions and, and even some of the more sexist ways that people walk through the world couldn't happen. You know, grandma pulled her weight. Because they were all like both doing did. the same thing, yeah. They were, they were doing similar things, but in sure. a way they were both working 12 hours a day. Sure. And so as their story changed, they, because they were business partners, I love that it, they, they diverged less. Yeah, um, and it was, it's one of the most romantic post um, Alzheimer's disease partnerships I've seen. You know, my grandfather was oh. very much in love with my grandmother at the end of their life. Whereas the other side of my family, I didn't know my grandfather on the other side, but he was a lawyer, and and his wife was sort of a housewife, and mm -hmm. it was a, it was a more troubled marriage. I think because it was is that more urban sort of um, atomization of how your life is. Right. Right. And so as people change, if you're not sharing a task like getting the crops right, up right, right, or right, right, slapping right, right, the hogs, right, right, right. and that's an aside, but I think it underpins how couples, for example, mm -hmm. and that's a, obviously couples therapy is, is one of the most of common course, yeah. ways, is that of course, of course people are changing and they yeah. become different people and they start to inhabit different stories. Exactly. So what kind of things do you see and how, what kind of solutions, for lack of a better word, yeah. do you present? For couples in particular, or just in well, general. Let's focus on couples because that seems like I mean, a very think, tangible thing. I think this is why I would really recommend anybody who just even has questions about couplehood to read Mating in Captivity. I think it it, it touches on a lot of this stuff really beautifully and much more eloquently than I ever could. Esther Perelman. Esther Perel. Esther Perel. Put yeah, that in the show yeah. notes. Um, and I mean, I think one of the, the main things is to ask yourself if you're willing to continue on in a relationship that's different than the one that you initially mm. signed up for, mm. you know, and this idea that again, a relationship is sort of, I mean, it's kind of like a leap, like an apartment lease. I know that sounds really unromantic, but I, I think that it's, it's kind of practical, right? It's like, do, do we want to re-sign the lease? Do we want to extend our time together? And, and that requires, I think a thoughtfulness and an intimacy that in my opinion actually carries you a lot further than this idea of like lightning in a bottle uh, fell deeply in love right away like I'm gonna we're gonna be together forever within the five minutes that we meet like I, I think that that is what we're social again that's the story that's we're told about love yeah. that's the story we're told I've definitely fallen victim to this like that's yeah. the story that we have been told about love and what to expect from love and then the reality is oftentimes very different than that and that's where a lot of the tension comes in. Well, all the all romantic comedies end with the beginning, right? You you don't see what happens six months later yeah. because what happens six months later is much more painful. It's difficult. It's you're like, oh, now I have to get used to this person and adjust my life, and they have to adjust their lives, and we're really not that similar, and that's okay. You know, I think hmm. whereas I think like the 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 idea of being like we're in this together now, and in the foreseeable future. And what we would like to do is continue to renew our lease on this relationship, you know, and that requires coming together and having kind of this practical and again, loving, respectful attitude of like, where are we at three years from now? 
okay, I'm still in this. Are you still in this? Great. Where are you at five years from now? We're still in this. Great. But I think it also allows for the fact that your story about yourself and your partner and your relationship is going to have to change probably hundreds hmm. of times. Hmm. If you're going That's to have one, if you're going to be in one monogamous relationship, right? This is all specifically for like monogamous couples. If you're going to be in a relationship for, I don't know how many years, say 40 years, 50 years, the story that you tell yourself and that the, the partner tells themselves and that the two of you tell each other is going to have to evolve. Yeah, this is a key thing to keep yeah. in mind. Yeah. Actually, I think poetry does a better job of Hollywood with this dynamic. Right. Well, poetry, music, a yeah. lot of fiction. You know what I mean? I mean, it's yeah. just, it's, it's, that's a little bit more realistic. I well, think. Do you know William Carlos Williams' The Ivy Crown? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. so, like, poems, like anthologized poems, actually deal yeah. with. I think the line from that is, we will it so and so it will be. It's, yes. a, it's a person who's willing yes. acceptance of a marriage that's changed. It's intention, yeah. right? It's coming into it with intention of like, I, I see the good in you, I see the good in this, and I see how it's different than it was five years ago. Wow, that, that just feels so essential, you know? It's really important. And it feels like it should be a part of the conversation earlier, you know, in marriages I know. and I in know. partnerships. I know. And it's something that, again, I mean, this is all talk about constantly evolving and changing. This is all, this is something that I've newly been thinking about and working on of like challenging these stories that I have about relationships and love and this idea of like, it's supposed to look this way. <laughs> because I'm like, where did you get that story from? That wasn't your story. You were given that story. Well, we exist in a web of stories, right? Yeah. You know, that like maybe I've idealized my, my maternal grandfather parents story and, and that's mixed in with Hollywood movies and that's mixed sure, in with sure. experiences that other people have had so right and values that are important to you right so so for you an egalitarian couplehood is important to you for sure. example or like sure. a work ethic is important for you and so then that makes that story even more appealing yeah well we could probably do an episode or a series of episodes about um, the marriage <laughs> partnership itself but I know, since, this is, since this is about narrative therapy and, and the multipolar nature of that and the multi nature uh, multipolar nature of the stories we tell about ourselves right. what are some other um, scenarios that people bring into a narrative therapy uh, appointment or other problems that people are confronting in life that can be addressed through narrative therapy? I mean, I think it's like what, what anyone would bring into any therapy, right? So it's, okay. you know, I think a breakup, the end of a relationship, um, moving to a new city, like figuring out who you are in a different setting, especially if you've been in a particular place for a really long time, uh -huh. having that suddenly change is really disorienting. Um, new jobs, the end of jobs or the beginning of jobs. There's a lot of research that's shown that things like, I remember when I first learned this, I was blown away that something like getting married is just as destabilizing to your system as like losing a partner. Interesting. <laughs> Starting a new job, moving to a new city is just as destabilizing as getting fired because the system doesn't doesn't ascribe positive. Your 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 neural your like your your biological system, biopsycho system is not ascribing good or bad to what's happening to you. What it re registers is change, right? Adrenaline cortisol like it's different something is happening something is happening that's not familiar and it's different whether that thing that's happening that's different is like a new baby or things that we think of traditionally as like this is a wonderful thing or yeah. it's like oh no somebody's died right like at the end of the day it's still something that's super super destabilizing and i think that talk about stories right like that's a really important one to look at is like anytime i think if therapy in general is so useful for for any life experience that's sort of like knocking you off your boots where you're kind of like whoa I've lost my sense of balance here you know and and that can be and I think a lot of times people feel really ashamed like new parents or when you first get married or whenever it's like you feel really ashamed if you have these experiences that aren't just simply joy and excitement and gratitude when in reality it's like well but hang on a second your whole life's been flipped upside down your body doesn't know if it's good or bad it just knows that it's different yeah, and I think, I mean, there's reasons why we already ascribe narratives of celebration to childbirth. Right. Whereas midlife crisis, which is also a change. Exactly. We're also, we're almost given permission to be a little bit angst, exactly. more angsty about midlife, exactly. um, which is which often correlates with kids leaving the home or, or whatever. Totally. But it, that, it, it's funny because the idea of midlife crisis popped into my head when you were saying that. But in a way, <laughs> midlife crises are almost easier to deal with because you can at least admit they're a crisis. Whereas childbirth and marriage are supposed to be celebrated, but when you feel that stress, That's sometimes you're afraid to admit it. That's the thing. I, I, 
one of the lowest periods of my life was after I got married, when I finished my doctoral training and everything, everything was finally done because I'd been in school since kindergarten, right? And I was finally, Um. this was like my late 20s. Finally was done with everything, was out in the world, had just gotten married, had just moved. Like there were all these big, on the surface, amazing things that had just happened. And internally, I was out of control. I was like completely spiraling. And it was because, and it took me so long to be able to put language to this. Nobody had warned me that those things were destabilizing. Nobody had told me that, hey, any change is still change. You know what I mean? You can be excited about it eventually. Once again, once you integrate the change into your story, into your understanding of yourself and you go, oh, this is what it means to be married. This is what it means to be out in the world. This is what it means to move. This is, you know, but at the time it was just like, oh my God, why am I so deeply unhappy right now when all of these amazing things have just happened? And there was so much shame attached to it. Like you're saying, if God forbid you lose someone that you care about, it's socially sanctioned to be unhappy for a while, right? It's socially sanctioned to miss work, to not be doing well, to maybe feel a little depressed, to maybe have, you know, to have whatever reaction you have. Not as much when, 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 when these things that we attribute, again, positiveness or goodness or joy or celebration to, but I'm, I'm like such a big proponent of like, your system will register things the way that it registers them. It's not your job to judge that. It's your job to respect it and like organize your life around it. Yeah. Well, why don't you, just so, again, listeners can, can understand how this works in real time, maybe start by talking about how you dealt with your late 20s yeah. angst and then talk about strategies that maybe listeners can implement in the right. narrative therapy sense. Sure. Because when, when we had the session, we were talking about the idea of connecting versus letting go and possessing versus appreciation. And I think right. when we're younger, we're trying to accumulate and possess, whereas appreciation right. is something that we should confront when we're older. I'm getting ahead of myself. So why don't, we, why don't you talk about I your think, situation and how to apply that to people? I think for me, what happened was that I was, I, I was not doing well for a, like a few months and I didn't know what to do about it and I didn't really know how to talk about it and I felt a lot of shame around it. Um, it was just a very disorienting experience because again, I've, I'd been trained in my life to expect those feelings or those sort of experiences around things that were difficult or that I had, you know, that the society would sort of ascribe as difficult, not so much with things that were joyful. So I think for a long time, I just didn't really like do anything. I didn't do much of anything. Um, and then I started to talk about it with people. And that's why, I mean, this is why like therapy helps, right? There's been so much research that shows regardless of what modality of therapy that you're using is, as long as you have a good relationship, therapeutic alliance is the number one indicator of whether therapy is useful. Meaning, Therapeutic alliance. Meaning you and your therapist have a good relationship. Gotcha. There's mutual respect. There's mutual um, positive regard. And you feel hurt. That's it. Having someone that you feel is really listening to you and not judging you and giving you that Mm. experience, Mm. that is half of it. Okay. Genuinely, you know, um, which is why side note, I tell anyone listening to this, if you, ha- if you're looking for a therapist and you don't, if you have an experience with a therapist, give it at least a few sessions. But if it's not feeling like a good fit, it's like dating. It's okay. okay. Find a new therapist. Right. But so I think what started to help was like talking about it with a lot of people, um, and just putting language to it again, putting things become less scary when we put words to them, right? So mm-hmm. putting language to it, talking about fear, talking about how this was bringing up like sort of an existential crisis for me, um, feeling like I was on the cusp of turning 30 and not knowing what that was going to bring and just a lot of this anxiety around that and these big life, social life markers and what does it mean that this is done and what is it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and then starting to write. That's really the truth is that I started to write and a lot of the stuff that I wrote turned into the 29th year, which is the poetry collection that just came out in January. Um, which is not a plug. It's just truly what happened. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, and you can order it on. Yeah, no, but it's literally what happened. Is like I just I started to for the first few months I couldn't write, and that really compounded the crisis of faith because I was like, this is the only thing I know how to do when I'm not feeling well, and I was just like totally blocked. And so what I started doing was writing these little images in my like phone notes. I couldn't write a full poem. I couldn't write a full sentence. I couldn't write a full story, but I could write images and memories and dreams and whatever. Um, and then once I started to stabilize after a few months and start to feel a little bit more okay, kind of re-enter the world, um, I, I did this beautiful residency in Marfa, Texas through the Lannan Foundation. And I was there for a month. And that was when I just like, I wrote everything down and I started turning it into these 
more coherent stories. Right. I took all these disjointed memories and dreams and ideas that I was experiencing in this sort of dark night of the soul and then turned it into something that was that kind of had a beginning, middle, and end. You know, and I would say the the tip. I mean, I know a lot of the people that might listen to this are writers, you know, or aspiring writers, or people that are at least are interested in narrative, or interested in travel, interested in the ways that we change and evolve. I think one of the things I would say is like write first for the sake of authenticity. Don't write for publication. Right. right? Write as if nobody's going to read it, um, especially when you're writing things like narratively that are difficult and you're trying to cope with them. It's like first, so if someone's trying to write a memoir, for example, about a difficult relationship with their father or sexual violence or whatever, it's like just write the divorce. Like just write what happened first, you know, and really kind of organize it in a way that is that starts to make meaning and starts to make sense. For the audience of you, just... Just for you, gotcha. yeah, yeah. Just write the story. Gotcha. Write it literally the way it happened, right. the way that you remember, and then try to write it. Then I think what's useful, and this is where like the idea of multiple perspectives is like, then try to write it from the perspective of someone else, because <laughs> that can also be a useful exercise, right? So if you're writing the story of the relationship ending, write it from your perspective, then write it from the partner's perspective. You know, this advice I give in in the context of, of memoir, even cross cultural travel memoir, it's like, yes. well, if this is a creepy vendor that you ran into in Marrakesh, well, what was his perspective, Of right? you, yeah. Or if, Love this that. Is, or if this is your horrible uncle, well, how did he see the situation? So this Love is it. this is part of It's perspective of taking, yeah. and it's compassion. And what is, what's good writing if not compassion and curiosity, right? Like, so it, it builds that muscle, and it builds compassion for the self and for the events that happen and for the story. So I think that's a big part of it is, like, just take your time. Um, I would say also don't try writing about things. We were talking about this in classroom. Like, don't try writing about things that are just happening and like mm. too raw, and you're still in the middle of it. Like, you can mm. take some time to process it. Talk to a therapist. Talk to a friend. Like, you know, find find a way to just like start to integrate it a little bit before you put language to it. Um, and we, I mean, I was saying this before too. Is like I'm such a big fan of like the oddly Audrey Lord idea of self care, which is like. It's not. It's not indulgence. It's an. It's. It's a way of. It's. It's a method of self-preservation, right? Like that's. It's really important. It's how you survive in the world, and so for some people that's bubble baths, and for some hmm. people it's making sure you eat three meals a day, or it's hmm. making sure you get at least six hours of sleep, or it's making sure you have identified a group of people, even if it's two or three that you can call if while you're working on your story you start to get really triggered or start to have a panic attack, like. It's how do you survive moment to moment and hour to hour and day to day and, and and don't withhold things from yourself. I think one of the things that we do that's really cruel and again, probably connected to the stories that we tell ourselves about weakness and survival and like what you need and what makes a good person or whatever, is that we deny ourselves compassion and care and the things we need in the moments we need them the most. Hmm. You know, and that's it's really heartbreaking when you think about it. Like I've seen that in so many people. I've seen it in myself. I've seen it in family. I've seen it in friends. I've seen it in patients. Like the moment that people need really the 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 kindest of self parenting, right, or self caretaking is the moment that there's instead like, I can't believe I'm taking this so hard. What is wrong with me? I'm such a loser. Like why am I why am I having such a hard time here? I can't even write. I can't even whatever. Um, and so I think that's a big part of it too. Is like really identifying people that you can turn to that can also help you help challenge gently some of those beliefs well let's, let's talk about this um like would it be bad to suggest people do some practice writing without a therapist no no okay. no i don't think i mean that's the other thing is i don't look I'm, a, I'm i'm not i'm a therapist who is also okay with the fact that not everyone's going to go to therapy you know what i mean like like that's fine like some for some people it's not um that is not the best fit for everybody. Not everybody heals and copes and 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 can connect in a therapeutic relationship. That's okay. I've really I've come to terms with that. I I would say you then then the, your task is to find ways that you can connect with people because I think that connection is really what's important. If it's happening with somebody else, if it's happening internally, if it's happening with ooh, if it's happening with like. Um, a, a film or music or writing or art or a city or a season or a month or whatever like as long as there's some sort of intimacy between you and the world you're interfacing with the world in some sort of way and creating a connection and a relationship like that's what's really important at the end of the day it's and I think community building is really important too 
You know, some people really love group therapy. Some people, you know, love AA. Some people love a writing workshop. Like a writing, I've seen writing workshops be some of the most incredibly therapeutic mm. spaces. I've seen open mics be some of the most therapeutic spaces. I mean, what we're doing here with the student readings, tell me that's not therapeutic. Yeah. You know what I mean? Tell me that's not restorative and healing. And empowering in a Oh my sense. God. Yeah. Every time I walk out, I'm like, yes, this is so life affirming. You know, so it's not, there, there isn't just one way to, to, Recover. Well, this is good to acknowledge because I think some people might think, you know, I yeah, I have this angst in my life, I have this change in my life or loss in my life. But I don't really need therapy. But like, is there a home starter kit? Right. Um, so maybe just yeah. so just for people who are putting this like over in their head, like how what, what are some practical, concrete things that they can do? Right. Um, sort of therapeutic narrative exercises at home that might yeah. involve some friends, but involve opening a notebook and writing I think down. open a notebook I think find a good time in the day to do it I think find a ritual that works for you and and and, and stick to it I do 30 minutes a day I know people who wake up in the morning and do morning pages for a few hour, hours I know people who write right before bedtime find what fits for you find a time of I think especially I would say if you're going to be writing about charged material or things that are a little bit intense for you I wouldn't do it right before bedtime it's probably going to disturb your sleep a little bit um, but find a time during the day where you can set aside 10, 20, 30, 40, an hour. I understand not everyone has the luxury of being able to sit and write for four hours, right? So whatever you can give, mm -hmm. can you do it on the subway? Can you record mm -hmm. it while you're driving to work? There's like inventive ways to really reclaim time. Um, and so I would say find something that works for you. Podcast for yourself. Podcast yourself. Podcast yourself. Podcast yourself. Call You're call somebody on the way to work. Yeah, or totally. four person. I record all the time. I pretend I'm on the phone. Uh -huh. I like it's like a little using your voice memo. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I just pretend I'm chatting on the phone. Right, yeah. And in fact, I'm just talking to myself as I walk down the street. Yeah. And you listeners have permission to do that now. Yeah, you can if I'm doing it as a therapist, yeah. you can do it. Yeah. It may not be the I mean it's definitely not the most normative experience, but it's yeah. what works for me you know but it's getting your story to getting yourself your story. in a starting way that you can to return to it. exactly starting okay. to organize it starting to put it on paper I think ideally if you can scratch out like a little bit of time every day where you can sit down free of distraction and write even if it's for 15 or 20 minutes I know some people have kids you know what I mean like people yeah. are busy right people some people work three jobs but if you can scratch out a little bit of time sit down maybe cup of coffee or a cup of tea or something like that write for a little bit I would say start at the beginning. Start at what you're trying, start at the very beginning of, of the story. Of your problem or your life? Of your life. Okay. And the reason huh. I say that is because what happens a lot of the time is the problem at this point has been masticated and re, like, re, like it's been looked at so many ways that you're gonna really just tell that one dominant story. But if you start from the beginning, you're starting from a more neutral place. Hmm. So by the time you reach the parts of your life that are quote unquote more problematic or more bumpy, you're more likely to be looking at it with a little bit of distance. You're more likely to externalize the situation a little bit more. Well, it's interesting too that you might find things that are a part of the story that you didn't realize were because exactly. oftentimes in exactly. writing workshops, the advice is, well, this ending doesn't work, not because the ending is misphrased, but because three pages earlier, right. something's missing. Right. Or, we didn't earn the ending. Yeah. That's what happens a lot exactly. of the time. You know, it's like there's a story, there's a, there's a dominant theme or something. We didn't earn that. Where, where's that coming from? Yeah. And then really challenging, like, wh where are you? I mean, that's what I, when I talk about narrative therapy, again, I'm not a, 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 a trained narrative therapist. I, I was drawn to narrative therapy and the tenets of it because I was a writer hmm, and so yeah. it made a lot of intuitive sense to me where I'm like oh yeah that's right a lot of those ideas of faulty storytelling or you have to externalize or you have to look for different ways of doing it you have to reauthor is what you do in the editing process right it's how you know if a story is working or not it's not authentic what mistakes should one avoid in doing this or are mistakes not even something that happens? I don't even know if I think of it as mistakes. I think you you just want to make, you want to take care of yourself. So I think right. one of the things that happens is people do too much too soon, right? So like for example, jumping into trying to tell a story before you're ready to tell it is not the best idea because it's probably just going to trigger you. Um, I think th this is, I think, a quote-unquote mistake is like people write as if to an audience mm -hmm. right from the beginning or will think about the audience too much or will be writing as if they're already being published in the Paris Review, hmm. not useful, right? Because you're not going to then tell an authentic story. You're still doing the same thing, which is you're, you're telling a story from a perspective that it can be taken in. 
but some, by someone else, not by you. Does that tempt people to exaggerate one way or another to like overhero themselves or over victim Potentially. themselves? Potentially. I, th I think whatever, it, it depends on the person, but I think what it definitely tempts people to do is not be authentic. Okay. Because the real story oftentimes is usually just messier. And maybe that's why it's best not to think of an audience first. Don't think of an audience. Okay. That'll come later. Write right. what you're writing, and then there will be editors later. There will be copywriters. There'll be people who are like, hey, we got to tighten this up. Memoir, I mean, you you know this better than anyone. Like, memoir at the end of the day is not necessarily, this is exactly what happened, right? It's the version of the story that you can put between two covers and put on a bookshelf, right? That's okay. That's a contract. Again, that's a social contract we're all entering. The reader accepts that, and the writer accepts that. But to get to the heart of it, to get to a good memoir, to get to a good story, to get to a good poem, first just tell all of it. Tell it as authentically as you can, and then you can rework it afterwards. But then at least you've done that work for yourself to begin with. One question, it's sort of an aside. Is narrative therapy for people who aspire to be writers, or is it for everybody? No, it's for everybody. It's, okay. it's not, yeah, it's not like a... It, and the clientele, I don't know what the percentage is, but I don't think it's like primarily for writers or anything like that. Another good thing for listeners to keep in mind, because some people might be thinking, it sounds amazing, but I'm not really a writer. Oh, no, 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 and no. I got you don't even have to English write class. anything. Right. So a lot, a lot of people, I think like like people who are, again, trained and traditional, I think what happens a lot of the time is you're, it's a lot of it's just talk therapy. You know what I mean? You're, okay. you're doing talk therapy. You're doing a lot of this verbally. You know, so it's more. It's, ra it's rather than come in and be like, "Give me your memoir, and now let's go through it." It's more of like, "Tell me about yourself." Oh, interesting. After knowing you for a few sessions, I'm I'm realizing there are some dominant narratives here. One is that you feel like you fuck up every relationship that you're in. Like, I'm, now I'm wondering if are there exceptions to that? Is that really the case? Like that. That's it's it's more like that. And is the principle that you always write it down and record it somehow? I'm like, how does it differ from the classic? Image of therapy of, of you lying on this couch while you talk. You're not to lying on a couch. Okay. Yeah. So so you don't have to always write or record it. I okay. think some some people w will ask that of the clients. Um, I think the the way that it differs is that the the approach is different. So the therapist is coming at it with a different modality. That's that's mainly the, the I mean that's the main difference between any modality, right? So okay. what's a modality? Just uh, an, uh, a treatment approach or a okay. treatment a, a way to conceptualize. The treatment. Okay. So some people, for example, are really analytical. So they uh -huh. come into it and they're like, you're going to lie on a couch and my approach is that you're going to free associate and I'm going to take that in and I'm going to talk very little. I'm going to be a blank screen. That's kind of the old school way of doing it, right? Uh, and then you have people that are ascribed more to like attachment theory. So their approach is listening to the relationships that you're describing and connecting them with, with relationships that got fractured or hurt or whatever from your childhood and being like, this is the way we're going to stitch this together. CBT is you're looking at the way that your thoughts impact your behavior, which impacts all of these things. So it's like, and that impacts your emotions, right? So that's what I'm, I would be listening for if I was a CBT therapist. What's CBT? Cognitive behavioral. Gotcha. Yeah. So the idea that like the way that we think impacts what we do, which impacts how we feel. Like that, or that, rather that all three are actually, to be honest with you, multidirectional. They're all three in, impacting each other. Then you have narrative therapy, so it's just it's the way that the therapist is thinking mm. about the, the person coming in that's usually different. Certainly sometimes, that, like if you come in and you're a writer, I'm sure that that therapist will be like, yeah, let's integrate writing into this, right? right. Um, but, but generally speaking, it's just that the therapist is looking for and thinking about the world in a way where it's like, there's no such thing as one reality. We construct our reality. We make meaning. Um, we come in with these dominant uh, narratives. We want to come up with more multi-storied narratives. Let's look for the unique outcomes. Let's look for the exceptions. Let's challenge that gently. Like that's 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 really what makes it different. What are some resources for people who go beyond the home test and they decide they want some more structure and do this with a narrative therapist? Yeah. Is, do they just Google narrative therapist? I think you would just Google narrative therapist just because it depends on where you are. Right. So there's like training institutes in, in, in some of the big cities where obviously you would just go there and then oftentimes work with a trainee who's being supervised. Um, I think generally a really great research is just psychology today. Hmm. So if you go to psychology today, like type psychology today um, and then your city and then therapist, they, they have a really great resource of a roster of therapists that work all over, I mean, really the world, but like the country, we'll say the United States, um, that will, that you can, there's also like a menu on the side where you can select like the different insurance, like your insurance, if you have a preference for gender, if you have a preference hmm. for style. So there's narrative. So you can right. select narrative. You can select all of that stuff. It's psychologytoday. Psychologytoday.com. Is there 
a way to do this online? Is there an app for this? There might be a Psychology Today app, but if there isn't, for, for narrative I think we just came up with a great idea. Right. Oh, oh, an app for, I don't, you know, that's a good an question. An app for narrative, not, not for finding I understand, a, a I therapist. Understand. Yeah. I, not that I know of, but I, you know what? I feel like there probably is. The, okay. the same way that there is like, so for CBT, there's like these diaries where you keep track of your thoughts and uh-huh. there's a lot of apps for that or there's apps for mindfulness exercises. There, I'm, there probably is, I don't know of any. Uh, I would imagine there are. We'll put them in the show notes if we dig some Yeah, 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 if we find some, yeah. What should we, since you have to teach class pretty soon, we cover a lot of ground that for some listeners could be very, very new and they're trying to process things. What should we leave people with in terms of people who are wrapping themselves around the concept of narrative therapy? Stories, yeah. I think just to really start to pay attention to the way that everything we do in this world comes with a story attached to it. And to really start to think about what are the stories we've been telling ourselves that are maybe not so useful anymore. You know, everything has a function, right? So like you look at something like people who have certain symptoms of like substance abuse or dissociation or whatever. At a time that served a function that outweighed the cons. At a time getting blackout drunk was something that you did to cope or to function, right? It was what got you through whatever you needed to get through. And then there's always a turning point in the life where suddenly that becomes a thing that has more damage than good, where it's no longer, it's no longer a useful coping strategy. I think the way we think about the world and the way we think about ourselves and the stories we tell are very similar. They oftentimes have a really important function at a certain point because they help us survive and they help us cope. And then things change. You're in the world longer, you meet new people, and the the story you tell yourself starts to manifest in ways that aren't great. If you think you're going to ruin every relationship you're in, you're probably going to behave in ways that ruin every relationship you're in, right? Things become kind of self-fulfilling. Um, and so I think that's at that point where you where you start to go, okay, these stories aren't so useful anymore. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to all of Hala Alian's poetry and fiction books, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music. Jan Futterman does the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. <laughs>